Today Pro Se is brought to you by Quimby. Are you ready to take something off your plate? Finish your continuing legal education today with Quimby. Quimby CLE courses are entertaining, on-demand, and truly anything but boring. Now through the end of January 2021, head to quimby.com and you'll get 5% off your purchase with code CLE360. Happy studying! Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hey, everyone. Uh, we made it. We made it. Although, what we didn't make it to is the Law 360 holiday Christmas party. Oh, yeah. Brutal. Yeah. So yeah. brutal. I'm really this week. sad about that. Very sad. It's usually a good time. I feel like it's I, hard to express how good of a time it is from the outside, yeah. but it's it's a rager every year. Yeah, I don't know. It's probably not so. I mean, I it's it feels weird to describe a party that no one ever goes to except for the except for us. But like, uh, brought this up on a union in in, in a union meeting the other day because we've we've hired a lot of new people in the time of coronavirus, right. and. It's very sad because these are these are new employees that don't get to enjoy the splendor of the Law 360 holiday party, which I've described it as a pageant of whimsy. It uh, is a pageant which of feels whimsy. A, yeah, you, yeah, Amber, you, you, you know. I mean, it's a, it, it, it's a, it's a vibe. It's a mood. It's I have a, a video of Alex that's saved on my phone in a special folder of him arm wrestling someone at a holiday Christmas party. Oh, when you said a Great. video of Alex saved on my phone, I thought something much worse was coming after that. Um, but Guys, that's a different folder. Be... Yes, I was I, I was arm wrestling Andrew Wesney, um, and I lost convincingly with both my right and left arms. I'm left-handed, so I always arm wrestle people right-handed. And then and I these, am like, oh, but surprise, I'm left-handed. And then he beat me anyway. Um, and these anyway, are the yes. things that law, that uh, the year 2020 has robbed us of. I'm really <laughs> sad about this. Among I'm many expecting other the 2021 holiday party for Law 360 to be really crazy. Just I, make up for all of this. They, they, they're, there will need to be federal regulations about <laughs> what has to happen. Um, but yes, um, it was a crazy year. And we have uh, a show that will try to... Restore some order to the craziness. There were lots of yeah. interesting stories that we will uh, try and run down for you uh, in in our in our own pro se fashion. So yeah, our general format for this one, um, when we were trying to orient ourselves into what were the biggest stories of 2020, they really fall into buckets that are just the biggest stories generally. You know, the yeah. biggest news events, and then we're just sort of going to provide the okay, and here's how that big news event impacted the law in the legal world. So we're going to take you through first. We're going to talk about uh covid ever heard Shocker. of it i've heard of that yeah yeah <laughs> sounds uh, right then we're going to talk about the um uh all that happened this summer in the wake of uh the death of george floyd and the sort of racial uh reckoning that we've dealt with over uh the course of the last six months yep. as a country uh and and then we're going to end it with um again uh the election i don't know if anyone remembers that uh they had but, the nerve to hold an election in 2020. I don't know where crazy? somebody got that idea. Isn't it crazy that this all <laughs> happened in one year? Yeah, it's just, yeah. It's, it's flown by. Um, 2020 we- was the longest decade I've ever experienced. <laughs> <laughs> before we dive right into it, um, one just sort of programming note for our listeners. 
this is our final show of 2020. Um, we're going to be off for the holidays and we'll be back at the start of next year. Yeah, whenever we have an opportunity to seize two weeks off, we're definitely going to take it. Um, but in the absence of a show for the next two weeks, we have a packed show, as Bill said. We're, we're, we're running down all the major sort of news totems that everybody knows about, but, you know, in our own sort of uh, exciting legal way. So, Amber, uh, as as Bill said, there was this matter of COVID. Uh, there yeah. was a global pandemic that took effect and is still taking effect. Um, and there were many permutations to discuss. So where should we start? It seems a little silly to have to say that the biggest story of 2020 is the pandemic, because of course it is. Yeah. And there were, you know, I was looking back through our archive of shows this year to decide what to pull from and what we wanted to talk about. We have discussed COVID in Almost every show I know. since yeah. the pandemic began. So it's no surprise we have a lot to cover here, but I just wanted to hit some big high points. Um, the first one is just how courts coped with such an unprecedented situation in the first place. The The basics here are that the coronavirus obviously kicked up in the U.S. in March, and it left everything, including courts, trying to figure out you know, how to adjust, should they be closed, what should they do? At the time, Law360 put out um, a coronavirus um, court map, and we thought, oh, yeah, this will be really handy for a month or two. (laughs) And then a month or two became the summer, and we saw a few things open back up. But then the fall rolled in, and that map is, yet again, very useful for attorneys and legal watchers because we've had a second round of, of closures a bunch of places. So in light of all these changed circumstances and so many courts having to close in part or in fall, Courts really had to figure out alternative arrangements. You know, what can they do to keep the wheels of justice moving forward? Can you even do a jury trial over Zoom? You know, some courts tried that. Can you do telephonic oral arguments? A bunch of places tried that, including the Supreme Court. So we saw a lot of creative strategies to keep things rolling, but they didn't always turn out great. Yeah, there there are a bunch of different permutations about the way that this filter through the, the the sort of nuts and bolts of like the daily churn of the legal system um s- some more notable than others but let's but let's let's roll through a couple of these which we've discussed on the show before but i think are instructive to understanding yeah. the sort of enormity of the situation the very first one uh was one that i'd sort of forgotten about but really love um you should wear shirts on your zoom calls with a court um a florida family court judge we reported on this back in the spring, had to write a letter to the local bar association complaining about attorney attire on Zoom calls. Mm -hmm. There was a male lawyer who showed up on a call shirtless and a female attorney who looked like she was still in bed, but doing a call with the court. So early problems there about just what is decorum when you're calling in from your house? But there were more there were more serious things, too, here. I remember we had uh, Judge Rakoff on the show to talk about some of this stuff. Yeah, Judge Rakoff was a really great guest to have on because he had an unusual yeah. situation happen. I enjoyed happen. talking to him. Yeah, yeah, he had a really in- unusual thing happen um, for a judge, but what seems to be happening in all kinds of business calls where he was conducting a telephonic oral argument and there were um, th- he had allowed for the public to dial in to listen to the proceedings as if you had walked into the courtroom and been able to sit down and follow along. Sure. And uh, that led to a bit of chaos, lots of crosstalk and noise. At one point, a person on the call even called the hearing boring 
and everyone could hear it. <laughs> um, so it was, it was a real free for all there. Um, but it shows kind of the learning curve here because I know yeah. Bill and Alex, you guys had a chance to, to do that interview with Rakeoff. And yep. I think if I recall correctly, he told you guys that uh, because of that experience, <laughs> he spoke with his IT team and learned the steps for how to mute a call if he's the host of the call. I don't know how they didn't tell him that before, but uh, <laughs> it was it, it was it was interesting to talk to him about what was going on. And he's obviously a very notable judge that people pay a lot of attention to, and everybody was sort of learning on a curve. It was just like you can do, you can conduct some manner of business over Zoom or over the internet, but this is serious stuff. You know, people's lives and livelihoods are on the line, um, and uh, uh, it's a lot of interesting stuff. It also filtered up. Uh, to the highest court in the land, of course. The there was th- this was the first time that the Supreme Court has ever done telephonic arguments, and those were not without some headaches as well. Yeah, so I I'm sure we all recall this because it was hilarious. But during one of the very first telephonic oral arguments, um, a mysterious flush was heard, <laughs> and then came great speculation about who uh, did that on the call, not on mute these laws that apply to banks. And what the FCC has said is that when the subject matter of the call ranges to the topic, then the call is transformed. And it's, it's yeah. a call. The other thing with, with SCOTUS that, I mean, we talked a lot about the flush, but um, on a more serious note, I thought it was yeah. interesting that, uh, you know, Justice Thomas, who very famously never oh, speaks right. during live hearings, has completely uh, changed changed his ways in the context of these uh, these Zoom uh, oral arguments at the Supreme Court. He apparently likes the the sort of um, structure of it that you know a justice is given a chance to ask a question and then you move on, which is apparently his objection with the way that it goes in live court. So very interesting to suddenly you know this justice that we never heard speak on the court is now speaking every Absolutely. week. It was a shock yeah. when it first happened, but now it's just <laughs> Justice Thomas is ready to talk some more. Yeah, I have a couple others in this sort of list of ways courts had to adjust. These next few are are getting more serious still. So we've also had some irregularities on Zoom trials that have led to problems. So there was one particular asbestos case. And during a break um, left in a Zoom call was the jury and also the plaintiff. And they just had some casual, not related to the case, but just some casual bantery chit chat. And of course... Interactions like that between one of the parties and the jury are forbidden. So those rules still apply, even if you're in a Zoom. And courts have had to figure that out the hard way. Yeah, I remember they were talking about the, the, the one of the I, I can't remember if it was the it was the plaintiff or one of the jurors who talked about changing their Zoom background and there was right. like a little bit of levity injected, which is like ostensibly harmless, but as 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 you say, like pretty serious to like the sort of the way trials need to be conducted and all of that. But yeah, and, these are the n- new realities. Yeah, and perhaps the most serious of all is actually just from recently this fall, um, many jurisdictions have been really keen to get back to in-person jury trials um, because, in part, because of all these problems we're talking about with when you try to take things online or or telephonically. So um, in the Eastern District of Texas, we saw a mistrial after seven participants in a jury trial tested positive for COVID-19. That included jurors, members of both parties, um, you know, the defense and the plaintiffs, also a court staffer. So you can see how a jury can really become a, a super spreader event. And so a lot of this is now shut down until date to be determined next year. Yeah, it's the the, the courts have had to deal with it, but the uh, 
the law firms have had to deal with it too. So let's go through a little bit of what has happened with, um, you know, uh, the legal industry with the, the the big law firms out there, how they've dealt with this. Yeah, I hopefully this story is a bit of a, you know, things started sad and confusing, but they are trending in a more positive direction now. So basically, as with the rest of the economy, um, the legal industry was also hit when COVID first um, became a major issue and things were shutting down. So big law in reaction to that took a lot of steps aimed at budget tightening, essentially, and trying to weather through the storm of this unknown how long it would last and what exactly it would do to the economy. So er in the early days of the pandemic, we saw firms like Cadwallader, Wickersham and Taft announcing that they were going to make they were not going to make payouts to their partners. They also reduced pay for associates and administrative staff. And then other firms like Wombleban Dickinson and Prior Cashman did straight up furloughs and laying yeah. off of employees. So that's always sort of a frightening position to be in. Even if you're not at one of those firms, maybe you're at a competitor firm, you're, you're wondering what's going to happen to you. We saw a wave of these back in the spring. Yeah. It seemed pretty bleak. We weren't sure what was going to happen. But as firms have adjusted and gotten used to the lay of land, seen how their, how their clients are behaving during this time and what they're able to still accomplish... Um, many of them have started re reversing those austerity measures. So that's yeah, great news. Yeah, we've seen that in the last couple of weeks. Yeah. Absolutely. Even as far back as over the summer, Cadwallader and also Baker Botts, who were among the early ones that had done some of those salary caps and stopping payouts and that kind of stuff, they started walking it back. They um, have reinstituted the pay for many of the employees who were affected there. Um, other firms started doing things like offering bonuses to attorneys who actually ended up putting in extra mm -hmm. hours during the pandemic because of certain surges in, you know, specific types of lawsuits that have really come up, which we'll get into <laughs> in a few minutes. Um, and that's really a good signal, I think, that the legal industry took a hit, took a little bit to figure it out, but it looks like um, things in big law are getting closer back to normal and, and moving forward. Well, that tracks, right? The the idea that, you know, this isn't exactly backed up by data, but the, the idea that the, the, you know, the world has not gotten less complex or had less situations that <laughs> require not. attorneys over the last eight months. You know, <laughs> yeah. there are a lot of things we and we are about to get into them. There are a lot of novel situations that are created by by the pandemic that, um, you know, maybe maybe further down the the food chain at some of the smaller firms but but these big elite white shoe firms their services are in higher demand than ever i remember when it was it was sort of when it was taking hold and become and, and becoming apparent that the that the pandemic and the lockdowns and all the stuff that sort of flows from that was was going to become like a severe like disruptive force that like a lot of firms were like very proactive in organizing what effectively amount to COVID practice groups where you pool together, you know, insurance attorneys or, sure. you know, real estate attorneys, like sure. where a lot employment, of this stuff gets well, and employment and all, and all stuff like that. Like where like, obviously a, there's a, there's a wellspring of new litigation that flows from it. So it, so it does stand to reason that some of the bigger players have bounced back to litigate some of the cases that I think we should talk about right now. All right, yeah, let me get into some of the litigation stuff here. I think, no surprise, the first... I, I kind of want to talk about just like some big buckets just to give a, a flavor of what was going on because there's so much we can't really cover it all. But no big surprise that the first one I want to talk about is insurance suits. Um, yeah. 
that is what I think everyone just top of mind would think, of course, tons of insurance activity when every company is hit by the same problem, essentially. Um, Courts have issued just shy of 100 rulings on motions to dismiss or summary judgment motions um, related to cases that came up with with insurance companies. Um, That's coming from some some research out of the University of Pennsylvania. They said that by mid-December, so basically the duration of of this pandemic to now, more than 1,500 coverage cases have happened. So that's (laughs) a lot. It's sort of surprising that there aren't more, frankly. Yeah, I mean, I I think... um, Part of, you know, by me saying that there's only been 100 rulings on motion to dismiss or summary judgment, it shows that it's still early days. I mean, the pandemic had to hit. Circumstances had to be bad. Then they had to get in disputes with the insurance companies. So it's really the wave is just really hitting the courts, you know, the further we get into the pandemic. Um, So there's a couple different buckets of how things have gone in the court. And most of the time, insurance companies are winning. Um, So the thing that has come up is that um, one in particular was uh, out of Michigan and a restaurant operator said that his insurer should be forced to cover his pandemic related losses. And the insurance company said, Hey, no way. There was no direct physical loss or damage. Mm -hmm. Courts have largely agreed with the insurance company that COVID is a problem, but it's not a physical loss the way that would be expected in insurance policies and insurance don't have to cover it. That's been the predominant take on it. But over the summer, a Missouri judge, and everything I'm talking about here is at the trial level, so we haven't yeah. had any rulings above that yet, but a Missouri judge let a case move toward discovery, didn't kick it out of court, saying that a group of restaurants and some hair salons could say that their pandemic-related losses were, in fact, a direct physical loss and that you didn't have to have Mm -hmm. the kind of tangible damages that some other courts have said you do. So we're seeing a split there. That's the minority view right now. But I think it gives hope for a lot of these companies that want to continue to pursue these kind of actions. And we're just going to have to see into 2021 how this shakes out further at the trial level and then what potentially gets appealed to the appellate courts. The other thing that immediately comes to mind when you think of litigation over the, uh, you know, over the pandemic is the the lawsuits that are challenging uh, mitigation efforts that that uh, lawsuits that are saying, hey, this lockdown was illegal. This, um, you know, order from the government telling people how to behave during the pandemic was illegal. What has happened with those? We have seen a lot of those types of suits, and we've had mixed results depending on the location and the exact circumstances of what right. was closed and why. And we're seeing a whole patchwork of this going on around the country because of the way COVID has been handled in America, where states and localities were left to take measures about what was going to be shut, what could stay open, what were the rules for all of that. And it has varied just wildly, depending on if you're in New York or if you're in you know, Oklahoma, the rules yeah. are totally different. Yeah. So um, the one I sort of wanted to point out and sort of the maybe the vanguard of where we're going yeah. is this interesting intersection when we hit the high court. So um, the case that, that I want to talk about, Justice Amy Coney Barrett actually provided a critical fifth vote to lift restrictions on a number of on the number of people that could attend religious services. So, you know, churches, synagogues had challenged shutdowns for them in New York. The 
the opinion was unsigned, but it explained that there were a whole bunch of secular businesses that were called essential by the state of New York, and they didn't face the same capacity limits that they put on churches. And so we saw a real clash here of public health and safety interests versus the right of freedom of religion and congregating in your uh, religious gatherings. And so the quote was that the rules, quote, single out houses of worship for especially harsh treatment. Supreme Court didn't take well to that. And I think that's maybe a sign of there may be additional suits in that vein across the country if anything oversteps into an area that the Supreme Court really wants to protect, like the freedom of religion. Yeah. And one final group of cases that um, I've done a significant amount of reporting on is is these cases about um, uh COVID scammers, COVID grifters, uh, all sorts of weird profiteering and crimes and other things that have come out of this and, you know, the steps that companies have had to take to deal with it. Um, the like Microsoft had uh, filed this big lawsuit that was over um, this unprecedented effort to use covid as a, a, an angle for phishing so they would uh with emails they would you know use fake company yeah. addresses but then they would say something that had to do with covid and it would for whatever reason i mean i guess the, the sort of the panic that that people feel when yeah. they deal with the pandemic that made people that much more susceptible and that's such an interesting microcosm i think that this situation just makes people and makes the country more vulnerable to this kind of stuff. The other big one that we saw was um, uh, early on in the pandemic when uh, N95 masks were in very short supply and other uh, protective gear was in short supply. Um, 3M, which is a the the uh, one of the biggest suppliers of masks and and other protective gear. They filed a series of lawsuits uh, all around the country against people that were price gouging on on their products. And what they basically said was, these people are selling our, our actual products. They're not selling fakes. They're not selling counterfeits or whatever. But by by going out there and saying, I have uh, 3M masks, but they're going to cost you four times what they should normally... The company basically said, you're tarnishing our reputation by going out and doing that. So it created this interesting, you know, private cause of action hook for a company to regulate the way that its own products were being sold on a secondary market. Very interesting stuff from just from the from the, you know, my world from the trademark world. But I thought uh, sort of an interesting way to look at what people, what companies, what regulators have had to deal with here with just this deluge of crap that has come out yeah. of this, of everyone who was sort of a bad guy going in was like, ah, I could be a bad guy now. This is I could be a bad guy in this new cool way that I never thought about uh, that provides this opportunity. Um, yeah, there, there there were a million different permutations of the way um, that COVID effect, like sort of rippled into the legal world, but we would be remiss um, if we didn't mention the one group, uh, uh, one of the groups that got particularly like walloped by all of this were um, law students um, who were hoping to take the bar exam this year, uh, uh, you know, as as COVID took hold in the springtime, there was a lot of uncertainty sowed about how you could possibly do the bar exam in a in an environment like this. And much like different states and jurisdictions had different approaches to closures of retail businesses or just sort of consumer services. Various states employed different strategies to deal with the challenges of 
gathering many hundreds of law students together to take the most important exam of their lives. Um, Federalism I, seems cool until you actually think about it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and I mean, at the, at the risk of painting with too broad a brush, I mean, we've, we spoke with people who were caught up in the churn of this mess and it, it, it was a huge, um, like it, it was a huge pain for a lot of people. And, um, for a lot of different reasons. So, I mean, just to not to belabor the point too much, but, you know, in-person tests obviously present huge perils, um, which we don't even really need to, to state the obvious there. Um, but sort of then there were there were issues around various jurisdictions tried to administer online tests at home that use software to like track your facial movements to see if you were looking at another part of your screen or a you weren't book allowed to have something. books behind you or books so behind people you yeah the, uh, i mean, I mean yeah, just, as if the bar exam's not hard enough in a normal year yeah uh, it, it, it's it's and it created this whole new la- layer of tension and anxiety um some states agreed to do sort of a an in-person version of the exam, but was much shorter, therefore limiting your exposure. But then that created this problem of like not all jurisdictions would agree to sort of wave in or transfer your scores if you took the abridged test. And Which, that again, was, like that was part of the problem that it, it yeah. took a while for people to figure out what exactly was going to happen. There was just uncertainty <laughs> over what what these these difficult new things were going to be even before they oh yeah they ended up taking them. That's a good point. Like looming over all of these moving targets was this issue of like, when am I going to take this test? I mean, Amber, you can speak to this more than we can. I mean, that like the, the issue of like timing out when you are ready to sit down and do the test is like more than half the battle, right? Like timing this out the things that you truly, know. truly like almost yeah. fries my brain to talk about it. <laughs> I find it so, um, you know, stressful just watching this happen to law students that sure. you know, we're we're largely moved past some of those initial hurdles um there's still tests coming up potentially in i know the, yeah the winter we're, we're, yeah uh, yeah so yeah, we'll yeah we're getting quick notes here there. but this is largely unresolved right yeah. so but one thing that has been a little heartening for me um anytime i see on twitter that someone has posted in recent months that they got their score back and they passed the bar it's like an angel gets its wings it's just sure. it feels so good to see some people prevail over what were some really tough circumstances this year Once again, our show today is sponsored by Quimby. Quimby helps you finish your continuing legal education in a way that's entertaining, on demand, and anything but boring. Now through the end of January 2021, head to Quimby.com CLE and you can get 5% off your purchase. Just enter the code CLE360. Again, I'm sure it will surprise no one to learn that the next thing we want to talk about is the sort of massive uprising, protest movement, racial reckoning, however you want to describe it, that really took a hold of the country late in the spring and then into the summer, um, where even in the throes of the pandemic, people across the country took to the streets to protest 
What began as a protest of police brutality touched off by the killing of George Floyd by a Minneapolis police officer, um, which kind of enlivened a national conversation about the killing of black people at the hands of the state. And for at least the way we're going to talk about it is, you know, sort of how the legal system should address it. And of course, this this then drifted into not just police violence, but you know, broader issues of racial inequity, which were very important and 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 and, and remain very important um, in all corners of society. So, I mean, this was a this is a multi pronged activist movement that we, to be quite candid, can't hope to like capture all the enormity of that in right. like sort of one segment on our podcast. But it led to a lot of a lot of sort of important developments in the legal world and i thought it would be good to sort of run down a couple of those of those big factors that had people in our in in, in like in our legal news circles talking a lot well the first one that we should probably hit is the idea of qualified immunity um which for anyone who's been following this is not a new concept but it emerged as something of a flashpoint uh yeah as all of this was going down early in the summer for legal scholars and activists, we had uh, a whole show about it. Um, t- talk us through how that came up and, and sort of what we, you know, where, where we're at now. You know, it's funny that, that like when you look back on, on 2020 in, in lots of different contexts, there were crises and people like when when crises occur, people look to like some sort of order to like you know understand how to resolve it or how to or or, or how to address it, um, and that's why like dealing with racial inequity or or police brutality is so interesting through the prism of the law, um, and this is why qualified immunity came up so much because people started asking like why is it so difficult. To to like bring cases against cops who do things that that are that 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 appear to be way outside the bounds of their authority or some other thing to a to to an amateur observer, and the reason for that is because of qualified immunity. Now, speaking in generalities, every case that involves some sort of measure of police violence against um, a civilian is different. But going back decades. Statistics show us that prosecuting cops for killing in the line of duty is very rare, and it's even rarer for victims or families of victims to actually, you know, successfully sue police themselves. And qualified immunity is basically the reason for that. And the way to the way to sort of understand why that is the case is that over over the course of a number of opinions, the U.S. Supreme Court um, basically established this doctrine that we know as qualified immunity that shields government officials from being held personally personally liable while performing their duties so long as they don't violate you know clearly established law which is a term of art um so in so in practice they've this has given cops like a like a wide berth to um or has given cops a wide berth in the course of exercising their duty which is to say that every instance of violence between police and the people that they are meant to protect is so fact specific that courts often don't say that 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 police officers have clearly violated a law like if you take for example there was a there was a case i think last year where the ninth circuit some swat team officers fired like a tear gas tear gas grenade into 
um, a person's house and they sued them and said, well, uh, we're going to give them qualified immunity because you can't point to a specific court case or a specific law that says in those circumstances, it's it's wrong for police to shoot a grenade into your house. So you see where it's difficult, like within like to to fit within the specific parameters of a specific encounter. So, like I say, the, the, the Supreme Court created that doctrine on its own. And the summer's protests basically led a lot of people to sort of renew calls. Activists have been on this for for a while to, to, to have this revisited. But for them to do so again, um, we we discussed the issue in full in uh, in episode 153 with University of Chicago law professor William Bode. I would I, I would really uh, uh, recommend everybody um, go listen to that if you're curious to have a more fulsome discussion, sort of scholarly discussion about that. So now that we're sort of caught up in how this happened and why qualified immunity exists, you did nod there to the idea that there was a lot of pushback and some cases moved their way up this year that um, you know, fit into this landscape. What changed or didn't change with those? The Supreme Court has been it like gets I don't know like several qualified immunity related petitions every single term, um, and and over and this summer was no different. There were a lot more eyeballs on it now because everybody's talking about qualified immunity because of what's going on in the country. Um, they mostly declined all of those petitions, um, though in in November uh, we, we we should note. The Supreme Court did rule that uh, there, that a case against a bunch of Texas prison guards can uh, can can go forward. They were sued over claims that they placed um, a mentally ill inmate in cells covered in like feces and raw sewage uh, and things like that. It's, it's it was like very unpleasant to read about. But in that case, they they denied qualified immunity to those prison guards. But that is not the same as sort of a more fulsome examination of whether the doctrine of qualified immunity should right. exist. Um, and that that debate sort of continues to rage as as these wounds sort of linger in the American consciousness. So that's it, it's definitely something that's that's still a lively debate uh, to this day. So that's kind of the big picture of where we are with um, some of the legal things that came out of the protests in the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, but let's maybe get a little more specific about the protests themselves. I know there was some some legal stuff that came up just with the actual protests. What what happened this year? Yeah, the culture, the, the, the moment created an urgency that then led to clashes between the police and civilians, which inevitably implicates the legal system. And I thought it was, it, it's interesting that the protests that began about the excessive use of force by police like became a venue for like whether or not police were being too excessive in the way that they dispense with these protests. Uh, I, I, I just wanted to shout out back in June, also on episode 153, same episode as when we talked to Bill Bode, um, uh, our own Nadia Dreed uh, detailed this like huge pro bono mobilization of the plaintiff's bar who moved to like sort of to help people who were arrested, uh, protesters who were arrested provide legal assistance to them um, and sort of an invigoration of many different attorneys who don't normally do criminal defense. And that way mm -hmm. it reminded me of a lot of the COVID sort of all hands on deck, the, the early days of the COVID stuff. If you weren't, if you were, you know, sort of a, if you were just like a surgeon, you were now a sort of viral epidemiologist type doctor to sort of help with the, with the emergent threat. Um, so that was very interesting. But more immediately, uh, in the in the in the legal world, and specifically here in New York, uh, among the the protesters who were arrested here, uh, which sort of caught 
the attention of the legal press were two attorneys named Collinford Mattis and Aruj Rahman, and they were arrested for throwing a Molotov cocktail into a vacant, uh, already vandalized police van on the night of May 30th. This is in the early wave of the George Floyd protests. Um, Mattis is a, he is now suspended from prior Cashman. He was an associate there. Rockman was a Bronx legal services attorney. They're now facing 45 years to life in prison after the case, um, got elevated to federal jurisdiction because they used an explosive implement. Cases emerged as a real sort of hotbed in the legal community where Mattis's employer, uh, prior Cashman basically said, you know, we're, we're disappointed to learn that, you know, in the course of protesting these grave injustices, people are resorting to things like this. Um, well, on the other side, there are sort of criminal like you know, criminal justice reform advocates who say that, you know, the feds are transparently trumping up the charges for these for these crimes against two attorneys of color, which we should mention. Uh, uh, Mattis is black. Rockman is of Pakistani descent. Who again? I mean, this is sort of a this was a this was a, a device that was thrown into an abandoned cop car, and now they're facing life in prison. It's um, it's stirred a lot of debate. The case is ongoing still to these days. It's been like it has already been colored by uh, accusations that the grand jury that indicted them uh, sort of suffered from racial bias itself. That's still working its way through, but there were many permutations that are still bubbling up in the legal community. Sure. I mean, in the way that you said that, you know, these protests against police brutality then sort of expose new instances of police brutality. <laughs> yes. It's interesting how participants in these protests, their process through the legal system has now perhaps made us discuss the way that charges are brought and the way that prosecutors can trump up charges when they want to and, and not do it when they want to. Um, it's It's been an interesting, it's the the way that it has created more conversation. This entire thing has created conversation. Yeah. Oh, and and it has it has expanded um, beyond just the idea of police brutality. It has expanded to this broader idea of systemic racism and racial injustice, which mm-hmm. I you know, and we've seen that again. Uh, you know, beyond just these cases that that we were talking about just now. Yeah, the the that that expansion that you're talking about took root in like a lot of different ways throughout the summer and then into the fall and still happening as we're, as we're talking now. Um, But for our purposes, I mean, one of the most notable examples, again, for our purposes, not to say it's the most, most important in in compared to other things, but um, corporations began to cut ties with their own insensitive logos and branding and in some cases very profitable trademarks that have been sort of, that have been sort of stalwarts of their brands for decades just to run down a couple of those very quickly the um most people probably remember Aunt Jemima's maple syrup uh, sort of dumped that sort of very very plainly ra- racist iconography uh, same for uh, Uncle Ben's said it would become uh, original Ben's rice recipe and stuff like that. The country music group Lady Antebellum shortened its name to sort of rid itself of the <laughs> connotations with the Confederacy and things like that. Maybe most notably, since the, since especially the Washington football team, formerly known as the Redskins, was at the subject of a lot of litigation. Bill, you can probably speak to this more uh, uh, astutely than I can. For years, they were pressured to 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 change their name, both 
through just public pressure and through litigation. And the owner, Dan Snyder, said, like, was like, not only said he wouldn't do it, but like emphatically said he wouldn't do it. He litigated um, for 15 years over it. When yeah, the Supreme Court, yeah. It, it, you know, so the idea that then just suddenly, like, just name change. It was yeah. It, it it speaks to the gravity of the moment. Yeah. Th- so the, the the former Redskins did. They're searching for a new name now, apparently. Um, and the Cleveland Indians, the baseball team, um, dropped their names. And like I say, I mean, you know, it's it's not so crazy that a corporation would bow to public pressure in a certain context. But uh, Bill, you wrote a story back when this stuff, when the dominoes started to fall here, about just the. The idea that it all happens at once, where people, where companies have a like tremendous amount of money invested in, I mean, whatever, you know, the, the whole idea of corporate IP is, you know, establishing an identity, you know, that, that that's why it's so important for them. And that it would all sort of buckle under one point uh, or one friction point in American history is like very interesting. Our third and final story uh, needs no introduction. It is the 2020 presidential election, which capped off four very tumultuous, very legally interesting years uh, for yeah. uh, the Trump administration. We had a very contentious campaign, a very unusual campaign, because as we have alluded to earlier, it took place amid two other very, very, very important large stories that yeah. were gripping the country. Um, it ultimately ended in a victory for the Democratic challenger former Vice President Joe Biden. So in that sense, it is also unique that um, a, uh, you know, we don't see that many one-term presidents in this country. So um, a, a huge story. And, um, uh, you know, it's it's weird. It's a weird year where where you're not sure if, if this big contentious election is the biggest story of the year, but it's certainly one of the top three. Yeah. I mean, in a normal year, there's plenty of legal news overlap with just an election for president. But we actually got a real shocker this year that was directly on point with the judicial branch, and that was the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Let's dive into how that impacted the election and just what big news in and of itself that was. Yeah, Justice Ginsburg uh, passed away in in the middle of uh, the middle of September. Um, she was um, she needs pretty much no introduction. Uh, she she was eighty seven. She was um, the second woman to serve on the on the court. Um, a stalwart of the court's liberal wing. Um, you know, everyone should go back and listen to our full episode that that we did with our sister show, The Term, that broke down RBG's legacy, a really great look back at, at her life and her career. Um, but even on the night that she died, Republicans pretty quickly vowed that they would be filling her spot before the election. This pretty immediately drew backlash from Democrats who were still very angry about what happened in 2016 when Republicans refused to confirm Merrick Garland uh, during the last year of President Obama's uh, second term. Mm-hmm. It, it, you know, 
any appointee that President Trump in that context, you know, picked would have been divisive and would have been, you know, would have cemented a decisive 6-3 majority for the uh, for the conservative wing of the court. But President Trump opted to nominate uh, uh, Judge Amy Coney Barrett, who was one of his more ideologically conservative options for the open spot. She was um, a longtime professor at uh, the Notre Dame Law School. Um, She was on the Seventh Circuit, a sort of a, you know, seen as a protege of um, the the justice that she clerked for, Antonin Scalia, an originalist, a textualist. So really one of his more conservative options he went with here. Yeah, I mean, people, anyone who is even paid even a little bit of attention to this knows that there were a lot of scars that were still raw from the death of Scalia in 2016 and all of the and all of that um, and, and the, the the sort of, you know, procedure that played out after that. And then that this this sort of inverted itself when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died um, for when which set the stage for a very contentious proceeding for Amy Coney Barrett. I think it would be helpful to sort of set the scene about like exactly how that played out. Yeah, as you mentioned, I mean, in both of those situations, the the issue was more about timing than resume. You know, we weren't yeah. really talking about whether or not Merrick Garland or Amy Coney Barrett was qualified for yeah. the position. They both were. Um, it was about so, the propriety of the nomination in proximity to like to the 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 people voicing their will, which you heard a lot. Uh, this, exactly. This fall. So, uh, you know, citing all that went down in 2016, Democrats insisted that this process should wait until after the voters had spoken in the election, which was the stated reason from Republicans at the time. Um, But even setting aside what had happened with Garland, they said that a nomination and approval this close, you know, as you mentioned, it it is much closer than it was in that previous instance. Yeah. That just weeks before the election was was pretty, pretty much unprecedented in modern Mm -hmm. times. And you know, there was a lot of hyperbolic talk that that there would be retribution for this, that it would that it would you know that that we were shattering norms here, and that the the cycle of retribution was going to keep going with this. Um, norms should... had a big year. There was lots of talk about norms, <laughs> or a bad year if you you know if you want to think about it that way. But yeah. um, uh, <laughs> I'm just saying but... it was big. Uh, whether good or bad, they were they were being talked about the norms. Well, and I mean, and you're speaking about norms. The, the Democrats viewed it as you know this this has never happened before so what we are going to do in response if we win is we will pack the court or we will admit new states to the union to give ourselves more power to appoint supreme court justices so a lot of you know this this idea of of things are not operating the way that they had in the sort of stable way for a long time with the supreme court but ultimately republicans just had the votes they had the power and ultimately there was there was not much the democrats could do to stop them um on uh it was october 26th uh with the election just eight days away amy coney barrett was confirmed at the bench um she will likely be a very reliable uh, vote for the conservative block of the court um you know on abortion rights on gay rights on on voting rights on business regulation um for a really really long time to come so you know those were sort of the stakes of this situation but i think an interesting way to pivot here to another part of the election that we want to talk about is to say that, you know, aside from from what I just said about, you know, there's going to be this conservative majority on the court for a long time for, you know, it's a lifetime appointment. The other big reason people cared so much about the Barrett nomination was that it was perceived 
that the, the courts would come into play in the election that that um, yeah. this election that was looming in eight days not only was it sort of outside the norms for a supreme court justice to be appointed but one to be appointed that many people were worried would would play into a case potentially before the supreme court that decided that election this perception was aided by the fact that president trump repeatedly said that um you know he sort of said that part out loud that that you know yes. they wanted her on the court for the scenario where the 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 election goes to the court yep yeah so president trump did spend a lot of time leading up to the election talking about um you know potential of voter fraud irregularities with you know mail in ballots that became so prevalent this year because of the pandemic so we sort of see all of the stories that we're talking about kind of mash into one story yeah. with this. Um, what ultimately happened leading up to Election Day? I-, I know so much of this ended up funneling into the courts. Yeah, there were I mean, there were cases filed uh, long before the election uh, that were challenging, as you mentioned, mostly measures that had been put in place to make voting easier, safer more pop like just more possible uh, amid the pandemic mm-hmm. um early voting drive through voting and above all uh a very very huge expansion of mail in voting and you know the the different things you would need to do to make that work that if if you get a flood of these mail in ballots you need to have a longer window after the election to receive them if the mail was slow that was a whole other story that we're not even going to get into here <laughs> yeah um once the election actually arrived and particularly in the days after, as it became clear that uh, Joe Biden would win 270 electoral votes, this campaign really took off and took into a different gear. Um, the We saw dozens of total cases filed. I think it was something like 60 by now um, that were filed in state and federal courts around the country. They were looking, you know, in a big picture sense, to disqualify some amount of ballots in these crucial swing states in the hope of swinging the race uh changing mm-hmm. the outcome you know there were alleged procedural flaws some irregularities there was a pennsylvania case that said the way the state was set up discriminated against you know certain counties that and the monitoring too it was about yeah sure with whether you could physically stand close enough and all there of were that. cases yeah. about the authority of a legislature versus an executive to change these rules and the propriety of that Almost none of the cases it should really be underscored here actually alleged the sweeping claims of voter fraud that we saw from the president and some of his allies. I mean, it seems like they tried very hard here. There were, like you said, you know, upwards of 60, 70 cases, but uh, none of them really turned out. I mean, we're, we're sort of on the back end of this now. How did they play out when they hit the court? No, it became pretty quickly apparent that this was not going to be a successful strategy, which then prompted a whole sort of downstream discussion of what was the point of it and was it done to yeah. raise money? Was it done really because they just wanted to do it? You know, that's a whole nother discussion for a whole nother type of podcast. But yeah, the the, the sort of brass tacks here is there was no evidence of, of major fraud in the election, which is, is very rare in any election. 
Um, this was confirmed by by officials around the country, including many prominent Republicans in in you know traditionally red states. Um, and certainly there was not enough you know that was found or that was challenged in these lawsuits to overturn the election, which Biden won by dozens of electoral votes and and more than seven million mm-hmm. uh, total popular votes. Yeah, we so- even had some judges in some of these hearings saying to the um, attorneys that were presenting the case, like. Well, show me your evidence. What's the is there actual fraud here? And they backed off on some of those allegations too, and and sort yeah. of stepped away from the term fraud pretty frequently. Yeah, and and what you saw was these judges sort of recoiling at the the remedy that was sought. That not only were they saying yeah. we don't have you know we don't have enough to work with here, they were saying we don't have enough to work with here, and you're seeking to disenfranchise millions of people. So it was a you know it was sort of a two sided thing that these judges yeah. were grappling with. Um, the real breaking point here came uh, about a week ago when the the U.S. Supreme Court, you know, Amy Coney Barrett and all, uh, yes. rejected a a very sweeping and, you know, according to many legal analysts, fairly dubious lawsuit that had been filed by the state of Texas that sought to toss out millions of votes um, in four key swing states: Georgia, Michigan. Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, the state, the um, they were challenging the procedures those states had used. It was a very unusual lawsuit. And um, uh, the the Supreme Court about a week ago declined to hear that case. And that really, you know, for a lot of people, that was really the moment when when it became clear that this was, you know, it became clear early for a lot of people. But that was really the moment when. It, it there was no more really uh you know runway here for this for this campaign. yeah well and especially in the sense of you know like we, we've already run down the circumstances of the coney barrett appointment but the idea that the 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 supreme court would sort of seal the election for trump the the, the fear of that for a lot of people was quelled when that happened although you know it was a, it was always a matter of if it was if it was very close this election was not particularly close and it just the the aim of the Texas lawsuit never like was never really within the realistic uh, sort of realm of possibility of, of you know according to almost anybody you would talk to. I think um, one of the things to come beyond this is just a question of is this just how elections are now? Are we always going to see you know seventy suits in the aftermath of every major race um, alleging improprieties and and fraud and problems? Um, yeah, I mean, I don't think it's a tenuous I don't think position. The- yeah, I don't think the courts want it to be that way. You know, it's it's that if this yeah. is the new precedent that that every time there is a even remotely close election that there's just going to be this deluge of of cases to see what sticks. I think yeah. that's sort of a dangerous situation you get into here. Mm-hmm. Um, one, one more interesting thing I thought about in, in terms of these cases was, you know, not so much the merits because early on many people said there's not much to yeah. these cases, but was a conversation that we had on this show and that I think a lot of people have had, which is the propriety of 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 lawyers who are barred and are vested with a certain amount of power bringing these cases that, that were pretty questionable from the begin with and had an aim that, you know, is is depending on who you speak to is somewhat undemocratic um yeah we've seen efforts that are aimed at at challenging the legal licenses of some of the people who brought these cases um we discussed at length the blowback that major law firms like jones day experienced for being even remotely involved with it they were involved in one of the earlier cases um so that conversation will continue the other thing that i think as we sort of wrap up today's show 
the the fallout from the Barrett stuff is, I think, far from over. That that mm-hmm. we, we you know Democrats vowed that they were going to find a way to sort of avenge this situation. They didn't win enough seats in the election to do anything like that. So, you know, will this just resentment? fester for a while and what will happen the next time that uh that uh someone that that a seat opens up it's you know is this cycle of escalation going to continue is the is the federal judiciary going to keep getting more and more politicized i i don't know i don't think you guys know um but uh we'll have to wait and see what happens up not only for this show but also for this year today guys it's uh it was a year i'm gonna say that i'm gonna (laughs) say that not i mean as we sit here we're recording on december 17th not quite 365 days yet but it was it was certainly in the 300s it definitely transpired i can say that much well one thing that i can say (laughs) to both of you and to our producers that are on this call with us right now too this has been a really tough year, I think, for people for a wide array of reasons. But being able to do this show is very anchoring, a real light spot in in the work weeks that sort of stretch seemingly endlessly when you're doing your living and your working all from your apartment. Well, you know, we're, we're all talking to each other here via Zoom, but um, and, you know, it's not quite like being in the studio, but it is as you mentioned, something of a lifeline, I think, for, for the three of us that we're able to, you know, have these fun conversations and feel like we're still living some some approximation of, uh, you know, the normal before times. And hopefully soon we can uh, we can get back into that studio. And I hope our listeners find that true, too, that, you know, we, we're really happy they kept listening this year and that they're they're part of all these talks with us. Every time we get an email from somebody, I'm really thrilled about, you know, the interaction. Yeah. So um, really appreciate people sticking with us in a tough year. Yeah, I would love to. That's that's what I was going to say. I mean, I was, Bill is totally correct to say it's nice to talk to you guys every week and sort of anchor ourselves in this way. And we do appreciate the listeners uh, for sticking with us. Uh, we hope. We hope the quality hasn't dipped too much as we've retreated into our uh, 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 our domiciles. I don't think it has. I think you know it's been okay, but it's been uh, uh, it's been quite a year, and we're very thankful for everybody who uh, stuck with us during it. And it's been uh, a very fun experience. I also want to thank um, a large array of other people that make this show possible. First and foremost, our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader. We also have a great graphic designer, Chris Yates, that makes all of our images and pictures that go along with the show. We have a whole newsroom to thank as contributing reporters. They have done stellar work this year in some really challenging circumstances. So it's meant a lot to be able to, to pick up with them, to talk to a lot of them on our show. So thanks to everybody in the newsroom. We really appreciate it. Our music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. And if you like us and want to hear more in 2021, leave us a written review, especially with five stars that really helps other people find our show. If you want to read about anything we've talked about, including some links to some of the episodes that we've um, discussed today, so you can kind of catch up if you need to, just head over to our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. And again, a programming note, we're going to be off through the end of the year. So see you again in 2021.